time of worship, Lord, that in our lives, as we walk forward from day to day, that you would be welcome, that the atmosphere of our hearts would be changed, that we'd be more and more aware of your presence speaking to us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be briefly camping in that spot. So we are in the midst of a series that we are calling Discernment. And, and I have noticed that our, our, in our culture today, in the church especially, as uh, the culture has moved further and further away from Christianity as its cultural norm, that many of the practices of Christianity have been forgotten along the way. Some of the things that help us live a life that looks a lot like Jesus, that helps us to live the life that God's intended us to. And these practices, if they're forgotten, um, basically can cause us to be confused by the culture. And we co-opt what the world says is cool and all right. And many of us don't even know this is going on. We're just kind of living our lives, going along, making decisions based on our gut feelings and, and what makes us happy, what might make it most convenient and easiest in life. And so that's what this series has been all about because life is a series of choices, right? It's just choice after choice after choice, and that's the way life works. Today we're going to talk about um, what happens when we come to the fork in the road, as we talked about last week, and we find out that God is there, right? We talked about this just last week, that at the fork in the road, the good news is, even though you've got multiple decisions to make, God is there and he is speaking. But we're often confused by all the different voices that are speaking there. It's, it's not just God's voice. It's, it's the voice of culture. It's the voice of reason. It's the voice of comfort. It's the voice of pride. It's the voice of anger. It's the voice of your family, your parents, your siblings. It's the voice of your girlfriend and the voice of your boyfriend. All of them saying, go this way or that. How do you know in the middle of all of that, that when you hear a nudging, a prompting, when you get this impression in your heart, how do you know that that's from God? That's what we're going to talk about today and next week, because there's honestly too much to talk about over two weeks. So the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about how do you know when you come to that nudging or prompting that it's from the Lord? So let's read First John, and we're going to start with, uh, in chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So the spirits here are actual people. We're not talking about spirit spirits. We're talking about people spirits. And they have entered into this church amongst John's friends, and they've started teaching, um, teaching the church things that aren't of the gospel. They're teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. They're teaching that Jesus was just a spirit. And John is saying that we need to test the things that we are hearing, test the things that we hear in our mind and in our heart and from other people to know whether or not they are from God. And his test in this case is to say, hey, is that person teaching that Jesus came in the spirit or that he came in the flesh? Because if Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he couldn't die in the flesh. And if Jesus didn't die in the flesh, then there has been made no sacrifice for our sins, and none of us have any hope at all. That's John's argument. So he goes on. He says, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which is the absolute opposite of, of the Christ, right? It's which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. It's, we've already been told, this is going to happen, guys. Don't be surprised. John says in verse 4, Little children, 
you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the, say it with me, world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of the truth and the spirit of error. Jesus, I pray this morning that you would teach us the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And that we would understand when we come to crossroads in life, when we come to moments of choice or decision, whether it be a moral choice, whether it be a life decision, a career decision, or even a parenting decision, God, that we would listen, we would stop, we would slow the process down enough so that we could hear your voice and we could test it to know that this is you beyond a shadow of doubt. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you guys love tests? Come on, there's got to be a couple of weird ones. All right, they're all in the back row area. In fact, four of you love tests. Oh, there's one in the very front row. I didn't see your hand. You've got to wave it a little more. You blend it in. Uh, yeah, tests, I, I hate them. Tests, have any of you experienced test anxiety? Test anxiety, anyone? Yes? Yeah, it's that moment when you're like, I'm going to forget something. I, I, I just know that I'm going to forget something, and I'm not going to get it right. But you know what? We're not just talking about, when we talk about tests, we're not just talking about, like, a written test, right? In life, there are a lot of tests. Just think about it. If you go down to the hospital because you're sick, they run a blood test to find out what's going on inside of your body. They might, if you're having trouble with your eyesight, they might run an eye test or an ear test. There's tests of knowledge, but there's tests involving needles. And I actually like tests involving needles a lot less than I like tests of knowledge. I don't know about you guys. But no matter how you look at it, tests are important. Think about it. Think about this for a minute. Without them, we wouldn't know whether our professors are qualified to teach us a, a class, right? If they don't have a PhD or a master's degree, and we wouldn't just be... There's no test. It's like this guy just seems to know stuff about it. So we put him in front of you. So the test actually helps you know that you can trust what somebody tells you, that they're qualified. You wouldn't know that somebody understands the rules of the road and are actually capable of piloting a car down the road without killing people and winding up in a tree like this picture that's going to be up here behind me in a moment. In a moment, here it comes. Wait for it. There it is. See, it's that moment when you realize you failed the driving test, right? We wouldn't know without tests that people are qualified to be out on the road. Tests are important. And then think about it. God has given our senses as our ability to, our means to do our own testing. For example, we use our eyes to test and see if there is danger in the road ahead of us, if there is a tree or a tornado coming, right? We use our eyes to test. We use our ears to listen to sounds of approaching danger. One of the earliest developments in, in humanity is that fight-or-flight response. And all of our, all of our uh, resources, ears, eyes, nose, mouth, everything is tuned to that moment. And you know when you get that hair up on the back of your neck like you're being watched or a bear is about to chase you? Right. That's your senses testing what's going on around you to give you some knowledge. Without tests... Like the test of our nose, we wouldn't know if meat has turned, right? It's, oh, it's kind of greenish. I don't know. Maybe it's all right. And it's like, well, there's that rotting flesh smell. Our nose. God has given us our nose to test whether meat is bad or if milk has gone bad. And occasionally, well, we use our taste buds for that one, right? Hey, I think this milk is off, Jerry. Would you taste it for me? Yeah. Why do we do that? What is, it's universal. You go to anybody's house and they're like, whoa, I don't think this is right. Here, you taste it. Nobody's willing to test that one themselves. So tests, what they really are, are filters, okay? Tests are filters that help us to determine what's good and what's bad, what's, what, what's okay, what's not okay, what's qualified, what's not qualified. 
for some reason, as a teenager, these these tests kind of go out the window, right? We just kind of move through life blindly, and parents are here to help kids test what's right and what's wrong. This is our job as parents, is to guide our teenagers into a life where they use their brain, right? My dad used to say that all the time to me. Like, I'd be out, I'd ride my bicycle, I'd crash. He's like, where was your brain? Where was your head? I don't know. I was like, what in the hole? And there was a big culvert there, and I ran my leg into it. Uh, we're just doing anything. Chopped a tree down. It landed on the house. What was your, where was your brain? I don't know. I was just cutting the tree down. I didn't think. They teach us to think and to use our minds and to test and to see and to, to think about something beyond ourselves. And that's the purpose of tests. To help us know what is right from wrong, what is good from bad. They're filters. So when we're at a fork in the road and life hands us one of our many choices and we get this impression in our mind, this thought, this moment of, you should go this way. How do you know that that thought is from God? We have to test it. That's what John calls us to do. The same principle that John applies to the, the men teaching in their church, test the spirits. Do they, do, do they believe this way or do they believe this way? If they believe that Jesus came in the flesh, then that's a thought from God. That's a teaching from God. If the thought that is coming into your mind passes some tests, which I'm going to give you today, then you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that impression, that thought, that feeling is from God. So I've got like six, seven, eight, nine of these things. And so we're just going to settle in and we'll be here till Thursday. Um, and what I did is I decided to take, I've got four in your notes. And if we get to all four today, it'll be a hooray, right? We're going to get to at least three of them. So here's the first test. The first test is to ask this question. Does it actually agree with the Bible? Okay, we're getting super practical, folks. This is not heady. This is not... Uh, theoretical. This is the real deal. Does this thought, impression, feeling, does it actually agree with the Bible? The unfortunate and sad thing is, in today's day and age, most people don't even get to this question. We get to, well, does it feel good? Does it sound right? What does my gut say? What does my wife say? What does my friends say? What is, what's going to give me the most money? What's going to make me the most comfortable? The problem with making decisions based on comfort and, and pleasure is that often the decisions that we think make us most comfortable and give us the most pleasure often end in pain, right? It often leads us down a pathway of pain. So we want to back up and we want to ask this question. As followers of Christ, we are called to test our choices and decisions by checking them against God's word. That's a good thing, though. You know why? Because my idea of pleasure, my idea of comfort, my idea of a good place in life has changed quite a bit over the years. See, when I was in middle school, I thought to have as much candy as possible would be the most pleasurable experience. But now as an adult, I find out that that makes me fat and sick to my stomach. My thoughts and understandings of what's most pleasurable and happy in life have changed. But get this, God's word is a foundation that we can check ourselves against and it never ever changes. Luke 21, 33, Jesus is saying this to his disciples. says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. God's truth is consistent. He is not going to tell you one thing in the Bible and then give you an impression in your mind for another. Let me say that again. God will not speak to you at a fork in the road and give you an impression or a direction to go in life that he has not already spoken in his word. Does that make sense? He's not going to change what he had to say. His word never changes. 
I like what Eugene Peterson, how he translated Proverbs 12, 19. The, the translation is called the message translation. I try to stick with one, but I really loved this as I was studying. It says this, truth lasts, but lies are here today and gone tomorrow. Truth lasts. How does this apply as a filter? How does testing our thoughts and actions against the word of God really apply as a filter? Well, here's a good example. Jesus is teaching his disciples. Somebody came to him and said, Jesus, you guys haven't paid your taxes. And Jesus says, go catch a fish. Jesus is always doing crazy things like that, right? So you're talking to him about taxes, and he's talking to you about fishing. And you're like, I don't, I don't get it. And so Peter goes, and he's like, all right, I'll go fishing. And he comes back, and he's like, hey, look, there's a coin in the fish's mouth. Wow. And he, Jesus takes the coin out of the fish's mouth. Why? I don't know. And he holds it up, and he says, whose picture is this? And everybody answers. Does anybody know this story? Caesar. Right, Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So Jesus says, pay your taxes. If you get nothing else today, ladies and gentlemen, pay your taxes. Somebody's got to pay for the roads in Pullman, right? Somebody's got to do this. So pay your taxes. Jesus says to pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he says, give to God what is God's. So he's saying, pay your taxes. Be a disciple. Follow Jesus. Give him your whole life. Give him your whole heart. If you come to a fork in the road, and you're looking at it, and it's April 15th, and you're like, I have got a $4,000 tax bill. I could pay this $4,000 tax bill, or I could go to Mexico. And you feel this prompting in your heart, dude, you should go to Mexico. That's probably not Jesus speaking to you, because he's already said in his word, pay your taxes. Do you follow me? If you get a prompting, and it doesn't agree with what Jesus has taught, then it's not from God. It would be a contradiction of his word. There are many verses in Proverbs that say that God will bless your business if you are honest and you are fair in all of your business dealings. So if you get this idea that could make you more money, that it could increase your profits if you were dishonest with people, then that idea is not from God. The vast majority of God's will for your life People ask, oh, what is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? And I'm just like, dude, read your Bible. Like the vast majority of it's right here. Sure, there's some specifics missing because you're unique. But the vast majority of what God wants from you is right here because God doesn't care so much about what you do, but who you are. And that is something that I've been preaching over and over again. And I hope someday that it'll rest in all of us. That God cares more about who we are than what we do. And that's why God's word becomes the foundation Galatians 1.18 says this, but even if we were an angel from heaven, and, or even if an, we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we already preached to you, this, this message that you received from the beginning about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and how it's changed everything, if anybody, even an angel from heaven, in all of his glory comes down, wings blazing, big sword, long flowing blonde hair, and says something different, then that person should be accursed, is what, what uh, it says in Galatians. Now, that's not a very nice thing to say. I mean, I don't know, have you ever said that to somebody like and really meant it? Curse you! Curse you! But that's what the author of Galatians is saying. That person should be accursed. It's tough talk. But God's truth does not change. And if you want to know God's voice, the only book that you need to hear is the book of the Bible. It's the Bible, God's Word. You need to memorize it, study it, meditate on it. That's why, that's why we encourage you to read your Bibles. Now, I don't say we read our Bibles every day. 
We don't re- I don't say that we read our Bibles all the time because it's unrealistic to do that, right? To every day, all the time. Some people can do this, but most of us, it's unrealistic. But to take time, to make time, to carve time, to set time aside to know God's Word is the key to you knowing that the voice that you're hearing inside your brain is from God. Because when you know the Word of God, you will not be fooled by lies. You won't be. But you will get into trouble if you doubt the Bible every time. Second test. The second test is this. Does it make me, does this decision, does this prompting, if I was to go down this path, does it make me more like Jesus? Philippians 2, 5, you guys are probably familiar with this passage. It talks about what the attitude and life of Jesus was like. It said, you know, who being in very nature God did not consider God, equality with God, something to be grasped, but instead took on the very form of a servant and, and gave his life to even to the point of death on the cross. He served us. And then Paul says this. He says, yes, there it is. I was like, not Galatians, it's in Philippians 2, 5. He says, having this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So to paraphrase what that means is imitate, think, act, let your life look like what Jesus looked like. That's what we're called to as believers. God's number one purpose for his, his number one purpose in your life is not that you would have a good job. It's not even that you would get great vacations. There are sabbaticals, which are really wonderful. His great purpose for your life is that you would be transformed into his image to become more and more like him and more and more like you were intended to be. That's God's number one purpose in your life. He is the standard of your life. He is the standard, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, of how we think, of how we act, of how we feel, of how we speak. That's why the second test to determine if an impression is from God is to ask that question, does it actually make me more like Jesus? Because God is never going to tell you something in your mind that would cause you to do something that is unchristlike. You guys ever heard that term before? Unchristlike. It means not like Jesus. It means it doesn't look like Jesus. So if you get this idea in your mind to go on a road rampage in your car, Jesus would never go on a road rampage because he loves his enemies, right? He loves his enemies. So instead of running his enemies over, he loves them. God will never give you a thought that would make you unchristlike. It's not like Jesus. Believe me, you didn't get that idea from God. If it doesn't make you more like him, it didn't come from God. James 3, 7, 3 14 through 17, it gives us some specifics that are really good measures of, for testing this idea. I mean, a lot of people try to describe what Jesus looked like. James, his brother, wrote this passage down, and I think he's like actually thinking about his brother. What was Jesus like? What was, what was he really like? And he said this. First he says, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, such wisdom is of the devil. The wisdom that comes from God is pure, is peace-loving, is considerate, is submissive, is full of mercy, is impartial, and is in, is is in, is sincere. I'm trying not to say insincere because that's not true. It's impartial and sincere. So first of all, this passage tells us two things about God's wisdom, about that voice that's speaking into your ear. It will not be motivated by bitter envy or selfish ambition. If you're looking to get something that you don't have and you're envying your neighbor for having it, a new car, man, 
our cars, they're, 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 they're like 15 years old almost. I think they're 14 years old and like 11, something like that. I don't remember. Is that close? They're numbers. So they're really close, they're, and they're getting old. Like little things are breaking, and we're wanting a new car. And we're driving around and through town, and, you know, this car goes by. I'm like, oh, that's a cool car. Oh, that's a cool car. And I spent time on the Internet yesterday because we're starting to think about buying a car. And you know what I want? I want about 35% more car than I have money for. And when I see my next-door neighbor pull up in her brand-new car, I think, man, I should have a car like that. Why don't I have a car like that? That's envy that's raising up inside of me that's causing me to be discontent with what I have. Not that I don't need something new or that one of these things is not going to break and I don't need to replace it, but that I want more than what is really possible for me to get and more than what God has designed for me to get. If I have that desire, that is not from God. That's envy or selfish ambition which is to make myself look really good for all the people around, that I would achieve some sort of level of prominence, some sort of level of, of business prominence or uh, political prominence, or even in the church, you know, I'm not, I, I can't greet. Because being a greeter, that's like, that's like the lowest of church jobs. And all the greeters are like, hey. No, I need a, I need a, I can't greet. That's a responsibility. I need a ministry. Put me in front of the church so that people can see me and, and hear me speak because I have these things from the Lord. Whenever I come across people like that, instantly my spirit is creeped out, just so you know. And I'm like, no, you need a responsibility for a while because that's selfish ambition and you just want it to look good. So those things aren't from God. But what is from God are these things. These verses instead give us seven things to test if an idea is actually coming into your mind is from God, something that's the opposite. So first of all, he says this, is it pure? Any thought that is impure did not come from God. Boom! You're like surfing the internet. And you have this thought come into your mind. And you use just a couple of clicks, right? That thought has come into your mind. That wasn't Jesus saying, hey, you should check that out. Right? If you're walking down the street and those college student girls are going by, guys, this happens around here all the time. It's the worst. Okay? And they're all dressed exactly the same and they're wearing far too little. And in your mind you think, ooh... That thought did not come from Jesus. And I'm speaking from a man's perspective as a man who has to sit out front in this building and watch all the college girls walk by all day long. And I'm like, gosh, just keep my head down, you know, because I don't want my mind to wander into these places. It's the truth. And college girls, just think about what you do to men. Just keep your brain together on that one, okay? Uh, just, that's just a warning. Thank you. So <laughs> any thought that is impure, God didn't give it to you. Secondly, is it peace-loving? If an idea is from God, it will, and let me say this word strongly, ultimately, it will promote peace and reconciliation. Because increasingly in our culture, we are becoming prophetic and creating conflict. When we stand up and say, hey, it's not okay to get so drunk that you don't remember like three days worth of time. Hey, it's not okay for us to just abort babies over and over again because those are babies in their lives. Things, and you know, often I try to avoid saying some of these things in this setting because I want to create space for all of us. But there are things that God's word is very strong about that we believe strongly. And we have to stand up and say, it's not okay. And that's going to create conflict. But when the spirit is behind the statement, when the spirit is behind the sentiment, when spirit is behind the nudging and prompting of your voice to stand up and say what is right or what's wrong, what's just and what is not just, 
ultimately, it leads to peace and reconciliation, not further division, not destruction of cultures, not tearing races apart, not tearing uh, political ideals apart and pulling us apart because it's meant to draw us together in the unity of Christ. So if an idea that comes in your mind is peace-loving, it's from God. Is it considerate? Any idea that would hurt or harm someone, even though it may benefit you, is not from God because he cares about the effect that it might actually have on others. We often do this, right? We, we just say things like off the cuff. We say whatever comes into our mind, and the next thing you know, we've hurt somebody's feelings. And like, this is like at the best of times, right? We've said something that's honest and true. We've just absolutely devastated a person. God isn't interested in devastating people. God is interested in drawing them to him. And so when we speak, and God gives you, you have this prompting in your head, is it a considerate thing to say? If it's considerate, it's probably from God. If it's not considerate and it's going to cause somebody damage or harm, that is definitely not from God. Now, here's a crazy one. Is it submissive? If you get an idea from God, you have to be open to sharing that idea with other people to get some feedback. And we're going to talk about that as the next test in a minute. Asking them what they think about it. If you're hesitant in your heart and you don't feel like let other people into that idea to test it, to get wisdom from them, if you're like, oh, I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to go do this. I'm not going to ask this person that God's brought into my life that's full of wisdom. I don't want to talk to them about this. If you get that feeling of, I don't want to share this with other believers, this thing that I'm doing, this place I've been going, these people I've been hanging out with, these things I've been doing, if you're not wanting to share that part of your life with people, guess what? You are not having a spirit of submission to the wisdom that God has already brought into your life. God isn't le- is leading you to submit to others' feedback. So if it's not submissive and it's not willing to be submitted, it's not from God. Is it full of mercy? An impression from God will make you a more gracious person because we realize that there is this humility that comes as God actually speaks to us and we submit to what he calls us to. It makes us more gracious and kind people. It makes us less critical and less judgmental. So if you feel criticism and judgmentalism rising up in you because, oh, look what I did, that's not from God. That's selfish ambition. Is it impartial and sincere? When you get an idea that's from God, you don't use it to manipulate other people. You don't use it to get people to do what you want them to do. You don't use it to get your own way. It's sincere. It's from the heart. It's from the Lord. Any idea that encourages those seven qualities in your life, that's an idea that will make you more like Jesus. It'll make you look more and more like him. So think about it. Those little nudges, those little promptings you have in your heart from time to time, is that making you more like Jesus? Or is it drawing you down a different path? That's the voice of the Lord versus the voice of anything else. The third test I want to share with you this morning the wisdom of others. And we talked about this. The bigger the decision, the more important it is to get more eyes on the situation, right? When Heidi and I were, were dating and we were thinking about getting married, we kind of started talking about that. We naturally kind of started getting the wisdom of other people to look at our marriage. And one of the things we did is we brought a mentor couple into our life. 
And they were these fabulous people. We didn't agree like with how they did marriage particularly. They had a different type of marriage than what we had. But they were so wise and full of the Lord and full of the Spirit of the Lord that we just wanted to invite them into our lives to speak into our marriage, to speak into our relationship and how we related to one another, to speak into Heidi's ability to cook because she didn't have one at the time. Um, and it was praise Jesus from, from Mary Morrison, or uh, Lori Morrison, Mary's her daughter-in-law, but Lori. And so they, they brought stuff into our lives, and we submitted ourselves to them. And we asked our friends, hey, what do you guys think about our, our relationship? What do you think about us getting married? And we asked her parents, which was the most terrifying moment, when I asked her dad, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And he's this lawyer with this beard, and he put on his lawyer voice, he's like, that's not my decision to make. I'm like, oh, geez, what does that mean? Like, if you, I can't or can we invited people into our life to speak into that relationship because we knew that the decision we were going to make to be together for the rest of our lives is one of the biggest decisions we would ever make. If we're going to have people giving us input into our decisions in life, we want to make sure that the people that are giving us that input are wise and not just wise in the eyes of man, right? Oh, that guy's smart. That professor, he's great. You want to have people that hear the Lord, that that listen to those promptings and his voice and they follow him and they follow his leading in their lives. That's why church is so very important. A lot of people poo-poo church. I don't know if you guys know that. But they're like, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't go to church. I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I had this one guy that I, I discipled for a number of years. He was my bass player uh, and a worship team. And we were just like, we'd read the Bible together and was taking him through this process. And then one day he just like stops coming and he's kind of like, backs out of the band, backs out of church, and he like, I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, you know, I've been reading these things on the internet, and I, I, you know, the church is just all messed up, and they don't follow Jesus. They follow, they're, they're following Jesus, which is not Yeshua, the, this guy in the Bible, and he starts getting these wild, crazy ideas, and he goes off on this rampage of the church and, and runs away and leaves all of the relationships that he had in his life that God had placed there to give him wisdom. And in the end, he has walked away entirely from the Lord, and he basically goes to church, and I'm going to say this because you can do this. He goes to the church on the internet, which means he reads like internet uh, conspiracy theory web pages. That's church for him. Internet conspiracy web pages. And if a great internet conspiracy idea comes along, he buys into it, and he builds his life on it, and he's left himself very dark, very isolated, very suspicious, not free, not open, not loving, not kind, not peaceful. And this can happen to all of us. And that's why church is so important. Ephesians 3.10 says this, God's intent is that through the church, that's us, and not just us, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, the Catholics, yes. And I'm like, I'm like a lot of people are like, well, the Catholics, they pray to Mary. I'm like, no, they, they worship Jesus. They just got some other things in there. And the, the Catholics, the, the Baptists, I know the Baptists, they like want to rush into the restaurants before us, but the Baptists to each of these people, each of these people, each of these denominations, each of these parts of the faith, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. If you want to know God's wisdom, be a part of the church. God is not meant for anyone to go through life alone. He has made us to live in relationship with other people. So when it comes to hearing God's voice, you need to listen to the people around you. You need a church family and a small group of people, a small faith group of people that can really speak into your life that you can say, I've been hearing this thing, and I've been wanting to go this direction, to do this thing. And, and I hear these promptings in my heart. And help me, 
help me discern this. What do you think? Will you help me test these voices? And to have that wisdom and let other people confirm it. If God has genuinely spoken to you, if God's nudging and prompting is real, then other people are going to confirm that in your life. Other people are going to say, yeah, I think you are called to this. Yeah, I think you would be good at that. Yeah, I think this person is great for you. Or, you know, maybe you need to rethink that. Maybe, maybe this is actually going to lead to pain. To have those voices. In Proverbs eleven nineteen, 19, uh, the author says this, that the wisdom of the righteous can save you. Advice from other mature believers can save you a lot of time wasted doing the very wrong things. It can save you from wasting money. It can save you from wasting your heart. It can save you from wasting your reputation. It can save you from making painful mistakes over and over again. One of the main reasons I think people mess up their lives is that they don't have any godly friends to give them feedback. Dale and I were talking just before church. I know you don't like me to bring you into this, but you're there, and you said this right before church. And you're like, he's asking my daughter, well, who are your friends? He's like, because who your friends are is who you're going to be. And I tell you, where you show me your friends, I will show you your future over and over again. We were having this conversation right before church, and I was like, oh, wow, here it is, right here. The main reason people mess up their lives is because they don't have voices in their life to give them feedback on their decisions. And that's why it's so important to be in a group of fellow believers who can hold you accountable and give you some advice along the way. The Bible says in a multitude of counselors, there's safety. So if you're not in a group of people, if you don't have a family, a church family that you are willing to listen to, and that's really the critical key, isn't it? Because we all have friends. I don't need to listen to them. I can make this decision on my own. If you don't have the attitude that I need people to speak into my life and help me make these decisions, and you're skating on very thin ice. And I'm not saying you're skating on thin ice with God. You're just skating on thin ice with life. You're skating on thin ice, and you're ready to plunge into the icy waters of pain, plunge into the icy waters of indecision, plunge into the icy waters of misdirection and going the wrong way. You just don't even know when you might fall through. The last test I want to share with you, and we're going to close with this. And I was really struggling because I really wanted to just do three, but I felt like this fourth one was really important for us. Let's ask this question. Is it convicting or is it condemning the voice that is speaking to you? In my life, I have, and I've talked about this before, I have struggled with a tape that will run in my brain in the background. And every now and then something, something triggers it, something kicks it on, something presses play, and it says you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not capable enough, you're not called enough, you're not a good enough musician, you're not a good enough preacher. We've all got voices like this, right? All these tape recordings that, that if somebody said something in our life, and there it is, and it sits there and it condemns you. It says that, oh, because, because of those things, since you are like this, well, you're never going to be successful. You're never going to be well-loved. You're never going to have a great, a great life, a great family. You're never going to do great things. You'll always just be small. You'll always just be this or always just be that. That is a condemning voice. If a voice, if a prompting, if it convicts you, then that's from God. But if it condemns, it's from Satan. And here's the difference between the two. The purpose of conviction is to correct you. 
on a specific issue in order to bring change into your life. It comes in and you get this sense, if I go this way, that would be wrong. It would, it would hurt my wife. It would hurt my kids. It would hurt my integrity. It would hurt my value. It would hurt my relationship with God. That's a conviction. I would feel guilty or bad if I did this thing. But condemnation is different. Conviction is motivated by God's love. That's him speaking to you, saying, no, this way is wrong. That is not what you should be doing with your life. But condemnation says, because you've done this thing, you're screwed, to use a bad word, right? You're toast. You're done. There's no fixing this. There's no, there's no changing this. There's no going back from this. God will come and he will convict us and say, look, you need to work on this thing in your life. But Satan will come to say, because you did this thing, there is no working on this in your life. You're just done. You're just, you're just evil. You're just bad. You're just broken. You're just lost. And that's the end of it. Romans 8.1 says this, There is no condemnation for those who b- belong to Christ Jesus. God will never attack you. God will never say that you are worthless or unlovable. In fact, Revelation 3.19 says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Another translation says it this way, Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, this is the amplified version again, it says those people that I dearly and tenderly love, I tell their faults. I tell them their mistakes. And I convict them and discipline them so that they would repent and return and come back and find my grace and be healed and be transformed and be changed and look more like Jesus. The purpose of condemnation is to criticize you and make you feel guilty. And it's usually in a vague way, right? It's not specific. It's just vague. If you ever feel guilty, but you can't quite point to anything specific, or if you're ever having a feeling of worthlessness, That's the voice of condemnation from Satan. It's a voice of condemnation from Satan. It's not a conviction from the Lord. And as soon as you start to confess what you feel convicted of, and you start to change that behavior and follow the prompting of the voice of the Lord and go the other direction, you're going to find that that conviction that comes is actually short-term, whereas condemnation is long-term. It's that voice translation that's going on in your head over and over again. That's conviction or condemnation. In our court systems, that's kind of what this is. It's conviction and condemnation, or conviction and uh, uh, the word, I'm sorry, I lost my word, and it's right here in my notes somewhere. Uh, when you were go to trial, and then after the trial, you have a sentencing. There it is. <laughs> conviction and sentencing, right? Conviction says, here is the law. Here's what you did. You broke the law. The law is, has to be upheld, and so... Now we're going to go to sentencing. Your sentence is five years in prison. Your sentence is, you know, wash ten cars and go serve at a church someplace and do community service. Uh, your sentence is life in prison. That's the difference between condemnation and conviction. God says, look, this is the law, and it has to be upheld. But what's amazing is in Christianity, God convicts us of our sin, but the sentencing has already been paid by Jesus. You guys, it was like like a moment of like, whoa, I never saw it that way. God convicts us of sin, and so we repent. He comes to us and he says, this is the law. This is is right. This is wrong. Listen to my prompting voice. You blew it. You need to work on this in your life. And you go, yes, Lord, I have. I, I need to repent. I turn back to you. Forgive me. And that's the end of it because the sentence, which is death, has already been paid for by Christ. 
It's already, the punishment of sin has already been served through Jesus' death on the cross. And so now we are free to live under that conviction of what is right and what is wrong and to find the way that God has created us to live at the road, at the forks in the road, to hear God's voice, to follow his prompting, and to walk in his way over and over and over again and to find grace when we blow it. I ended last week's message by saying, lean into God's grace. Don't let past failures at the forks in the road cause you to just give up and to say, I'm going to just continue to walk that way because I might as well enjoy life as much as I can, right? I've blown it and it's the end of it. It's never the end. The end is not the end until Jesus returns and says it's done. And until that time, he will continue to prompt and speak in our hearts and we need to test it and listen. So this morning as our closing, before we go and just play and have a party and eat free hamburgers and hot dogs, and hopefully you guys brought stuff to help fill out the meal, uh, I just want to sing this little chorus. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and change the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Imagine if that was your prayer at every fork in the road at every decision that life brought you, at every prompting, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in that moment. Change the atmosphere of my heart, not this building. Yeah, I want you to change the atmosphere of this building, but the atmosphere of my heart. Help me to want what you want. Help me to want to follow your ways, to, to want to change and to be like you. Help me to have an attitude of repentance for when I fail and a leaning on grace to trust that you have forgiven and paid the debt. Could you guys sing that with me? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. Jesus, I pray that as we come to the forks in the road of our life, as promptings, as whisperings, as impressions, as feelings come up in our heart in these places of decision, that we would have this prayer, that you would change the atmosphere of our hearts to hear you and to test what we hear to know whether it is you that is speaking or it is some other force that is trying to draw us in a different way of life and lead us from the path that leads to life everlasting in you. That is drawing us away from this path of Christ-likeness. That is drawing us away from the path of a disciple. That draws us away from the pathway that leads to heaven ultimately. God, may we be your kingdom here on earth, filled with your spirit, the presence of your voice speaking to us, leading us this way and that, floating on every wind of grace, following you in your ways. Jesus, make us easy and light in this process, filled with joy and filled with the conviction of your spirit that causes us and leads us to repentance, knowing that it's your kindness that does this and not your anger. God, lead us out from this place to be your people wherever you have placed us. And God, we also just pray a blessing over the meal we are about to receive so that we don't have to gather and do this later. We just pray that you bless the food to our bodies. Uh, You've already blessed us with it, and so we thank you for it. 
Um, I pray that the hamburgers would be well cooked. In Jesus' name, amen.